What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. Welcome to today's episode, which will likely deal with some dark topics and sometimes sweary words, so listener discretion is always advised. For ad-free and bonus episodes, click in the link in the show notes for exclusive content. You can support the show at buymeacoffee.com or by giving me a rate, writing a review, or subscribing to future episodes. And with all my marketing blah 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 out of the way, on with the show. This is A Million Other Choices, and I am your host, Kim. I am covering the Quebec mosque shooting today, which, if you are Canadian, you are likely aware of some of the events and are probably under the assumption that this case is an example of Islamic phobic thinking and a hate crime. But it's actually much more than that, and my research has taken me on a rather emotional and frightening journey, and so I have a couple of important people's opinions to share with you today, which I'm going to get to down the line. But where I normally, and I loathe to put the focus of any of my coverage on murderers, today it's kind of the way it's going to go, and it may seem like I'm sympathetic to Alexandre, I can assure you that I am not. What I'm always interested in is the red flags, the warnings, and the what the heck can we do to prevent these kinds of tragedies. And it's not as simple as locking up people that we think might go on a shooting spree. The truth is, as you'll discover today, it's a lot more complicated of an issue and one that even strict gun control laws aren't the answer to. We have fairly strict gun laws here in Canada and these mass shootings happen here. Uh, They happen in Europe and pretty much anywhere where there are people that feel pushed around by society and have the lack of coping skills to make more thoughtful choices. So I won't be debating the gun control issue today. And so with that, this is The Murders Committed by Alexandre Bissonnette. But I will start today talking about Islamic phobia and anti-Semitism because it's an important piece to the story and one that cannot be overlooked. I just don't want your takeaway that this tragedy was solely based on religious ideology. It went so much deeper than that. But it's the main points of the coverage and I also don't want to wash over it like it's not important. Hate is a thing and it's dangerous, but this story is actually more about the fine line between suicide and homicide, which sadly is a lot thinner than you would think or hope that it is. Quebec is a French-speaking province in our country, as many of you already know, and language and French heritage are hot topics there. I'm not going to get into any of that stuff. There is a long and painful history between French and English-speaking peoples in Quebec, and they are a complicated province. But they have a bit of an issue with hate crimes there. I mean, pretty much everywhere does. But for some reason, violent hate crimes seem to happen statistically more often in Quebec than some other provinces. And the victims are usually of either Muslim or Jewish faiths. 
The reason in general is that Quebec is one of our more population-dense provinces, but also houses the second largest population of Jewish faithfuls, and I believe the largest population of Muslims, but I might be wrong on that. And with lots of people squished together tends to come a desire to blame someone for your own problems. After World War II, about 80,000 Jews came over to live in Montreal, working in factories and owning small businesses. Others came in the 1950s from Morocco and North African countries. In the 1970s, when the separatist movement started to rise up, the majority of the Jewish people were English-speaking and became concerned, uh, and some of the people got a bit nervous about the talk going on between the French and English-speaking, so they relocated, but by 1998, the population had stabilized, and there were Jewish libraries and schools, and the majority of the Jewish population fall under the category of Orthodox Jews. Quebec also favors immigration from French-speaking people in general. So a lot of immigration is from countries that are former French colonies, such as Senegal, Syria, and Lebanon. So the Muslim population has also grown. In 2013, the Parti Québécois, which is the political party leading the province, passed the Charter of Quebec Values, which outlawed religious headgear, which included turbans, hijabs, and yarmulkes and also crosses and crucifixes. Now, this had created quite the stir both within the boundaries of Quebec and outside as human rights violations, and let's just say things are a bit tense in Quebec since. The pandemic didn't help matters and hate crimes continue to rise after the events of today's story, which were in 2017. Now, to be fair, I have never been to Quebec, and I've heard it is stunning and amazing, and like anywhere else in Canada, the people are friendly and inviting for the most part. This isn't a person thing so much as a political thing. If you meet someone on your next vacation from Quebec, be assured they are likely lovely and not racist. I know people from Quebec, they are fine, they are lovely. My point is they have a larger than average population in general from other provinces in Canada and more diversity. And with those issues comes a statistical rise in hate crimes. It has nothing to do with the average citizen of Quebec being anything other than tolerant and wonderful. You put 10 people in a room, one of them might be a racist or homophobe or something like that. You put 100,000 people in a room and, well, things can get ugly. But again, this story doesn't start with anti-Islamic or anti-Semitic thinking. It starts on December 1st, 1989, when Alexandre Bissonnette and his twin brother, who I'm not going to name, entered the world to loving parents Raymond and Manon, who were married happily to each other. The brothers were born in Quebec and both did the normal childhood things. They played softball and they were just as normal as normal can be. But Alexandre was always quieter than his brother, more introverted and socially awkward. They both joined the cadets and both were on a chess team. He grew up listening to Katy Perry, and although he was very normal, he had a lot of insecurities. He often worried about what his parents thought of him and was rather mercilessly bullied in school. Yet I couldn't find one person that said why that was. He wasn't a bad-looking kid. He wasn't overly skinny or heavy. He wasn't too smart or in the diverse learning classes. So I'm not sure why it was that he wasn't accepted by his peers, but it's agreed on that he was bullied in school and that it was really bad. As a result, Alexandre suffered from depression and suicidal thoughts, which he did not share with his family because he didn't want them to worry about him. In fact, he had mentioned it at one point and they had put him in a different school, but the bullying continued. So he just stopped mentioning it to his parents because he didn't think that they could do anything about it for him. He started to feel a bit negative towards people in general, 
like just negative thoughts. People are disappointing. No one acts properly, that kind of thing. He didn't think that the treatment he was getting from classmates was fair and he didn't deserve that kind of treatment, a fair assessment, but it started to become tinged with quite a bit of generalized anger that he kept mostly to himself. He also, around the time he was a teenager, started to align himself with some politically conservative thinking, nothing too out there at this time, and developed a drinking problem and that and that drinking problem he was able to keep under wraps for the most part. Also under wraps was his fantasies about blowing up his high school, something that he started to think quite a bit about after the Columbine shootings, and he was secretly using his laptop to search Dylan Klebel and Eric Harris, like, obsessively. But after high school, he moved on to study political science at the Laval University, where he shared an apartment with his twin brother. Uh, but they had both still been living close to their parents' home, and they were still over there a lot, probably to do laundry, eat a meal that didn't consist of ramen or mac and cheese. He drove a Chevy Malibu, which he shared with his brother, and his Facebook page was just normal stuff, although you could tell he was somewhat conservative and tended to like the pages of politicians like Marie Le Pen, who's a French politician who lost to Macron uh, and is known for some of her hard lines on things like immigration and French language issues. In 2014, a friend introduced him to firearms, and when he was of age, he lied on his application that he did not have suicidal thoughts and was legally able to acquire a gun no problemo, something that his dad was actually happy that he had a hobby now and would use the guns for target practice and hunting. In late 2016, he wrote on a blog post that he had recently stopped drinking because alcohol is bad for the health and added that he was very happy with this decision. While attending school, he was also working at Hema Quebec, which is basically a blood bank. And it was while studying at school that his thinking became even more conservative and far right. And this, of course, mixed with depression and suicidal thoughts, which can be very dangerous combination. Adding to this dangerous mix was his reluctance to discuss his issue about his self-loathing and starting to focus his unhappiness on other groups of people, women and immigrants for the most part. His dad was also the, under the impression that he had only one course left to complete towards his degree, when in reality he had actually dropped out. There was also an issue at work where he was forced on a one-month medical leave due to an altercation with a co-worker, which had been the result of his issues with anxiety. He was scheduled to return to work on January 30th, 2017, and about a month before this altercation at work, another thing that no one knew about until much later was that Alexandre had put two handguns into his backpack and tootled off to the local mall with a plan to shoot as many people as he could. But he saw a security camera and he decided that it wasn't the best location. During the month that he was on leave, he started to get a bit obsessive over some Twitter accounts that he was following, such as Tucker Carlson, Alex Jones, and Kellyanne Conway, to name a few. In fact, he had looked at Ben Shapiro's Twitter page 93 times in January of 2017. He also looked up Donald Trump 819 times. But rather than just issues of immigration, he also checked the Twitter pages of some feminist groups and made some troll-like comments there. He had a big interest in the polytechnic shooting, which was anti-female. He read articles about how feminism hurts both women and men and watched a lot of YouTube videos of men that argued with feminists. 
He enjoyed conspiracy theories and some neo-Nazi groups, although a later thorough examination of his online activities showed police no content created by Alexandri that, quote, could link him to the white supremacist or neo-Nazi ideology. But his consumption of right-wing and far-right material influenced his opinion on immigration and the presence of Muslims in Quebec. One article was a fringe group that said that radical Muslims were the dark, powerful, hidden force behind anti-Trump women's march in Washington and were plotting to get American women to wear hijabs. Friends and family were starting to see that he was very against immigration, particularly of Muslims, because in his view, they changed neighborhoods and increased unemployment. But again, he didn't say anything much to anyone about how deep his hatred and fears about immigration and feminism were going, and he never mentioned how bad his depression and suicidal thoughts had been lately. So on the morning of January 29th, 2017, the day before he was to go back to work, he spent his morning sipping his coffee over articles about Trump's proposed travel ban and about jihadi attacks, mass murders, and suicide. During the afternoon, he drank copious amounts of sake, a Japanese wine, and then read a tweet from Prime Minister Trudeau that we were to be accepting refugees from Syria. At 4.15, he visited the Quebec City Mosque's Facebook page, then at 5.28 read another of Justin Trudeau's tweets, this one officially welcoming those seeking refugee status. He went to his parents' house for dinner, and at 7 o'clock he told his dad he was going to run some errands and go do some target practice with his 9mm semi-automatic Glock pistol, and asked if he could take their Mitsubishi. They were unaware that in addition to the pistol, he also had a Czech semi-automatic 22 caliber rifle in his guitar case. He stopped at a nearby Circle K and bought a vodka ice which must be a thing only in Quebec, because here they don't have booze in convenience stores or grocery stores like they do in the U.S. Anyways, he then drove to the Quebec City Mosque, where he knew that prayers ran from 7.30 to 7.45. He debated his plan outside for a bit, but after thinking he had likely been spotted already with the guns and had nothing left to lose, he entered the mosque at 7.54, just as people were gathering their coats to leave prayers. Just before entering, he had opened his guitar case and took out the rifle and loaded it. Brothers Mamadou and Ibrahima Barry walked out just as he was entering, and he pulled the rifle on them and pulled the trigger, but the gun jammed, so they tried to run, only they slipped on the ice and fell down. Alexandri dropped the rifle and pretended that he had just been joking, but he slipped the handgun out of his coat pocket and shot Ibrahima in the left arm, back, and stomach. He then walked over directly to where he had collapsed and shot him in the head, killing him. I will be right back after these brief messages. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. Mamado had been hit in the shoulder and the thigh and was shot in the back of the head while he was fleeing. He then went inside and started firing from the Glock, emptying it before reloading in the midst of the chaos. 
He then entered the prayer room and fired 30 rounds in just 30 seconds, shooting at anyone and everyone, including 60-year-old University Laval professor Khalid Balkasimi and Adbelkram Hussain, Abdubaker Tabi, Nizar Ghali, and Saad Akjur. All of them killed pretty much instantly. Amen Durbali was crouched down and tried to distract him. He was shot in the knee, the chin, and then six more times. Miraculously, he survived. Then Azadine Soufain rushed him, pushing him into a shoe rack, but Alexandri managed to shove him back and shot him twice. He then left the room to reload again and came back to find Azadine still moving and shot him in the head again. Two minutes after he entered the mosque at 7.56, he left out of the front entrance as calmly as he had entered, and he then got into his father's car and left. He had stowed another pistol with one bullet in the Charlevoix woods to use on himself. In those two minutes, he fired 48 shots, killing six, seriously injuring five, and another 19 were injured less seriously. Now, before I go on with the story, I just want to take a moment to remember those that were killed. Ibrahima Berry, he was 39 and an IT worker for the government. Mamadou Berry, he was 42 and an accounting technician. Khaled Belkasimi, 60 and a professor at Laval University. Abu Baker Tabai, a 44-year-old pharmacy tech. Abelkarim Hassan, 41 and a computer analyst. And Azadine Soufain, 47-year-old grocery store owner and butcher who was awarded a star of courage after his death for his attempts to tackle Alexandre. He may have actually saved lives because he was the last person shot before he fled the scene. Now, who knows how many others he might have shot if, if not for his actions. Moments after Alexandre fled, Mohammed Belkadir, who had arrived to shovel snow, found the Berry brothers and called 911, covering Mamadou with his coat, and who was clinging to life at this time. Police quickly arrived, and Mohammed, fearing that there were sh- they were the shooters, fled, only to be caught and arrested and held overnight as a sus- suspected second shooter. This, of course, fueled initial reports that there was two shooters. At 8.14 p.m., Alexandre called 911 from the Ilordines Bridge and told the dispatcher that he was the shooter and wanted to turn himself in. During the call, he waffled between wanting to die and being afraid the police were going to kill him. He also wondered if he had just killed anyone. Obviously, he was brought in for questioning, and here's the thing. Remember how I said he didn't talk about his problems to his family and kept a lot of what he was going through to himself? Well, when asked, hey, Alexandre, why did you do that? He had no problem answering and opened up completely about what he was thinking and feeling in the days and weeks and months and even years leading up to the shooting. And not just to the police that questioned him, but also to a social worker and the psychiatrist that examined him. So it kind of begs the question, do we have to wait for someone to tell us what's on their mind? We can't inquire and just ask questions. What I've learned about homicide is that when a person feels suicidal because of what they perceive as unfair treatment, there is a higher likelihood that they will want to take others into death with them. Alexandre revealed all of his thoughts and concerns about the world, that he had been depressed and suicidal for about 10 years, also dealing with feelings of extreme anxiety. He was worried about immigration and that extreme Muslims were going to come and kill his family. He wanted revenge on his unfair treatment. He was taking Paxil for depression and it was new and making him feel worse. 
Um, I would play the interrogation tapes for you, but they are all in French, so I doubt that that would be very fun to listen to unless you happen to speak and understand French. So instead, I'm just giving you the Coles Notes version of the, the translated version. He was charged with six counts of first-degree murder and six counts of attempted murder. And although there were calls to charge him with terrorism, um, that's not actually really easy to do when it's a lone gunman, since in Canada, there has to be proven working with a terrorist group. But at the time, it was a life sentence and up to 150 years before he could apply for parole anyways, so he was guaranteed to die in prison. He initially pled not guilty, which is really more than a more of a formality. Uh, you will always be encouraged by a lawyer to plead not guilty from the start. Uh, he later changed this to a guilty plea to all counts on March 28, 2018, and he was sentenced to 40 years of parole ineligibility, which he appealed in March 2019, stating that he regretted dreadfully what he had done and that his actions had hurt a lot of people but that he should be given a glimmer of hope in the black tunnel that he's been in since January 29th. And on November 26, 2020, this parole period was changed to 25 years down from the 40 because stacked parole ineligibility periods violated his Charter of Rights and Freedoms as cruel and unusual punishment. And as we have come to find out, the Supreme Court of Canada has agreed with that and parole ineligibility periods of more than 25 years now are not allowed for anyone, no matter how many lives and lifetimes you destroy for others. It doesn't mean that you get out in 25 years, but it does make it possible. And of course, families have to drag themselves through parole hearings and relive the worst day of their lives over and over again, always fearing that the person will get out. Now I come to the part where I want you to hear from two people. One is a man named Aaron Stark and the other Sue Klebel. Yes, Dylan Klebel's mom, one of the Columbine shooters. I was almost a school shooter. In 1996, Denver, Colorado, as a student in North High, in a moment of pain and anger, I almost committed a terrible atrocity. Growing up, I learned early on there was a strange comfort and calmness in darkness. I was smart. I liked comic books at a time when kids didn't really like people who liked comic books that much. So every time I went to a new school, I was in a whole new set of bullies. They'd do things like walk up to me and shoot me with a harpoon like I was a whale, or dump food on my head because they said I was too fat. I wrapped that darkness around me like a blanket and used it as a shield. It would keep the few that would agree with me close, but it kept everybody else away. I always had heard in life that there was good people and bad people. I must be one of the bad people, so I guess I would have to just do what I was supposed to do. So I got really aggressive. 12, 13 years old, I got really into heavy metal music, and I was the mosh pit when I went to concerts. I got into cutting around 14 or 15, because I figured that there was all this extreme emotion going on in my life I had absolutely no control over. Had to find some way to find control over something, so I took to cutting myself. I still have the scars to this day. Finally, 16 years old, I'm sitting in my best friend's shed, who I thought I had already pushed away too by stealing from him and lying from him, knowing that if I didn't do something, I was going to kill myself soon. That darkness that I'd been staring in for so long, I just ran headlong into it. I had nothing left to live for. I literally had nothing to lose. And when you have nothing to lose, you, have ever, you can do anything. And that is a terrifying thought. I decided that my act of doing something was I was going to express my extreme anger and rage by getting a gun. 
I was going to attack either my school or a mall food court. Really didn't matter to me which one. It wasn't about the people. It was about the largest amount of damage in the shortest amount of time with the least amount of security. Both those places were right targets. So, I wish I had a better story about actually getting a gun, but that was actually really rather businesslike. There was some gangbanger kids near my school. It was back in the mid-90s when gangs were still a rather major problem in North Denver schools. So I went up to him and said, hey, can you get me a gun? Sure, get me an ounce. All right, give me three days. That was it. I was waiting to get myself a gun so I could kill a lot of people. But thankfully, I wasn't alone in that darkness. That best friend who had saved me who I was sleeping in his shed, he saw the place that I was in. Even though I had stolen from him and lied to him and took in his belongings and ruined it all, he didn't care. He still brought me in and showed me acts of kindness. Just simple acts. It wasn't the kind of overbearing kindness where they come to you and they say, is there anything I can do to you? Is there a program I can get you in? Is there something I can do to make you better? How can I help you? It was literally just sitting down next to me. Hey, would you like a meal? Let's watch a movie. Treat it like it was a Tuesday. Treat me like I was a person. And when someone treats you like you're a person, when you don't even feel like you're human, it'll change your entire world. And it did to me. He stopped me with his acts of kindness from committing that atrocity that day. If you see someone who's in that spot that needs that love, give it to them. Love the ones you feel deserve it the least because they need it the most. It'll help you just like as much as it helps them. We're in a really big, dangerous spot right now with this trend of arming the teachers and looking out for the kids who might be the threat in schools and maybe turning them into the FBI. What's that going to do to a kid who's in the position that I was in 25 years ago, who's alone and depressed and abused and is just sitting there hurting and someone thinks that they're a threat? So he gets turned into the FBI and one month of pain turns into a lifetime of legal trouble because one person thought he was going to be a problem. Instead of looking at that kid like he's a threat, look at him like he might be a friend. Look at him like you might be able to bring him into your fold. Show him that it's just a Tuesday. Show him that he's worth it. Show him that he can exist in this pain, even though it's intense, that at the end of it, there is a light at the end of the tunnel. I found my light. Now I'm a happy family man. I have a father of four. My wife and my daughter are in the audience today. And even bigger than that, even bigger than that, the friend who saved my life, he's in the audience today too. Because friendship doesn't ever really die. We have to give love to the people who we think deserve it the least. Thank you. It has taken me years to try to accept my son's legacy. The cruel behavior that defined the end of his life showed me that he was a completely different person from the one I knew. Afterwards, people asked, how could you not know? What kind of a mother were you? I still ask myself those same questions. Before the shootings, I thought of myself as a good mom, helping my children become caring, healthy, responsible adults was the most important role in my life. But the tragedy convinced me that I failed as a parent, and it's partially this sense of failure that brings me here today. Aside from his father, I was the one person who knew and loved Dylan the most. If anyone could have known what was happening, it should have been me, right? But I didn't know. Two years before he died, 
he wrote on a piece of paper in a notebook that he was cutting himself. He said that he was in agony and wanted to get a gun so he could end his life. I didn't know about any of this until months after his death. I'm trying to understand how his suicidal thinking led to murder. After a lot of reading and talking with experts, I've come to believe that his involvement in the shootings was rooted not in his desire to kill, but in his desire to die. The last thing I want to do is to contribute to the misunderstanding that already exists around mental illness. Only a very small percent of those who have a mental illness are violent toward other people. But of those who die by suicide, it's estimated that about 75 to maybe more than 90 percent have a diagnosable mental health condition of some kind. Too often, they get our attention only if they reach a behavioral crisis. If estimates are correct, that about 1 to 2 percent of all suicides involves the murder of another person. When suicide rates rise, as they are rising for some populations, then murder-suicide rates will rise as well. I wanted to understand what was going on in Dylan's mind prior to his death, so I looked for answers from other survivors of suicide loss. When someone is in an extremely suicidal state, they are in a stage four medical health emergency. Their thinking is impaired, and they've lost access to tools of self-governance. Even though they can make a plan and act with logic, their sense of truth is distorted by a filter of pain through which they interpret their reality. Some people can be very good at hiding this state, and they often have good reasons for doing that. But my son's death was not purely a suicide. It involved mass murder. I wanted to know how his suicidal thinking became homicidal. But research is sparse, and there are no simple answers. Yes, he probably had ongoing depression. He had a personality that was perfectionistic and self-reliant. And that made him less likely to seek help from others. He had experienced triggering events at the school that left him feeling debased and humiliated and mad. And he had a complicated friendship with a boy who shared his feelings of rage and alienation, and who was seriously disturbed, controlling, and homicidal. Dylan found access to guns. Even though we'd never owned any in our home, it was appallingly easy for a 17-year-old boy to buy guns, both legally and illegally, without my permission or knowledge. What Dylan did that day broke my heart. On top of the constant, perpetual grief, I was terrified that I would run into a family member of someone Dylan had killed, or be accosted by the press. Or by an angry citizen. Every time someone asks me, "How could you not have known?" it feels like a punch in the gut. But here's something I've learned: if love were enough to stop someone who was suicidal from hurting themselves, suicides would hardly ever happen. No matter how much we want to believe we can, we cannot know or control 
everything our loved ones think and feel. And the stubborn belief that we are somehow different, that someone we love would never think of hurting themselves or someone else, can cause us to miss what's hidden in plain sight. We should always assume that someone we love may be suffering, regardless of what they say or how they act. We should listen with our whole being, without judgment and without offering solutions. In the end, what I know comes down to this: the tragic fact is that even the most vigilant and responsible of us may not be able to help. But for love's sake, we must never stop trying to know the unknowable. And that was the story of the Quebec mosque murders. I hope you will join me again next week. As always, thank you for listening. And in the meantime, if you could do your rate, review, subscribe thing, that would be. special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co.